0: Good evening and good yomtiv. In fact, tonight is a, is, like today, it's, um, it's a unit of 48 hours. It's two days that Hasidim wish each other a good yomtiv. And the reason for that is because uh, if not for this day, I can probably say with uh, certainty, I would not be here. I would certainly not be here in El Paso. We would certainly not be uh, together tonight uh, to learn Torah, either online or in person. Uh, But I could probably say with with certainty that I, as a person, wouldn't exist if not for the great miracle that happened, uh, I believe it was 94 years ago. 94 years ago, 1927. Did I get my my math right? Okay. 94 years ago. So just to give a bit of a background, in order to properly appreciate the Hasidic discourse that we will be uh, studying tonight, in 1917, I believe it was, that's when the Russian Revolution began. And then it took some time, about two, three years. The czar was killed, and then there was a civil war between the reds and the whites, right, between the, the czarist uh, forces and the communist forces. <clears throat> and during this time, the, the one ethnicity that was always getting stuck in between both of these forces were obviously the Jewish people. I'm sure there were many others that suffered as well, but Jewish life was, was devastated, at least uh, financially and materially uh, during that time period. 1920, the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was in his 60s, wasn't very old actually, he it was, it was in his 60s, uh, passed away. And before he passed away, he told his son, uh, who later became the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe, that there are dark clouds above Russia. There are dark clouds that are, are forming uh, uh, on Russia, and not just because the, the constant wars and all, all the strife is going to cause a lot of physical and material damage, but there is a very unique and specific spiritual threat to Judaism that's on the horizon, and uh, it's going to be your job to really deal with it. And, and he passed away. Uh, he passed away on the 2nd of Nissan, so it's the beginning of the spring of 1920. Uh, the, pre- the previous rabbi became rabbi almost immediately, and it was during that time period that the communists started to really gain their full control of, uh, of Russia, and they turned it into communist Russia, or the USSR. That very first year, after his father's passing, the previous rabbi uh, went through a very difficult time period, uh, health-wise. He was extremely ill, uh, but also the the local communist party started to cause him a lot of trouble. He lived in the city of Rostov, and one one morning after he finished leading the services, uh, because it was during the year that he was saying Kaddish for his father, he was taken in for questioning. uh, And he was interrogated. During that interrogation, one of the interrogators, who was a Jewish guy, pulled out a gun and and, and pointed it at him, and he said, this little toy has made many people speak. And so the previous Rebbe said, this toy causes a person to speak if he has two gods in one world. I have one god in two worlds. That's not going to intimidate me. It's a very fascinating quote of the previous Rebbe. He wrote it himself in his diary. Um, tonight is not the time to really, you know, unpack what this, what this all means. Uh, but essentially that set the tone for the relationship between the previous Rebbe and the Communists. It was going to be a standoff. There was no two ways about it. Uh, the previous Rebbe would not back down. Uh, last night I was reading a letter that the previous Rebbe wrote describing the history of, uh, of his involvement in ensuring that Judaism should flourish in Communist Russia. Um, technically speaking, His official job description was to be a Hasidic master. A Hasidic master teaches exactly that, Hasidism. Hasidus. He's not busy opening up schools and then mikvahs and things like that. What's the deal? He says that in 1921, he realized that Judaism was effectively falling apart. The communists were shutting down the schools and the shuls and the mikvahs and they were shutting down kosher slaughterhouses uh, and soon there would be nothing left. So he made it his business to send messengers to all the towns, all the cities and towns in Russia. He wanted to have a report of what's going on in every place. Who's the rabbi? Who's the president of the community? Uh, Who are the teachers? You know, what's going on? What did they have before the communists came to power? What's going on now? Throughout an entire year, he gathered together a lot of information. And he um, he had intimate information of what's going on in every Jewish community in Russia. In the fall of 1922, he came to Moscow and approached one of the leading rabbis of Russia and he said, I would like to put together um, like a, an alliance. or like, like, I want to bring together all the leaders of the, of, the, of the Jewish community in Russia so that we should do something about the deteriorating situation. But he was too frightened. I mean, obviously the communists were communists. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a simple deal. And everyone that the previous rabbi reached out to for help basically shut the door in his face. They were frightened. And the Rebbe realized that no one would help him. And no one would stand by him as he fights to preserve Judaism in Russia. So he says the following. He once heard a saying from his grandfather, the Rebbe Maharaj, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who said the following. The world says, if you can't go under the obstacle, then try to find a way to go around it or go over it. And i say that if you're confronted with an obstacle from the very beginning just go over it don't try to don't try to negotiate with the obstacle don't try to find other ways to deal with it just try to jump on top of it just go on top of it and the previous ever writes that this became my my inspiration in life i knew that the formidable obstacle was in my way was in the way of all of judaism of russia but my attitude must be if there's a problem they took away the, the teacher from this town, we're going to send another teacher. They arrested the Sheikh, the ritual slaughter of the town, we're going to send another one. Even if they're sending them off to Siberia, into the firing squads, etc., we're going to continue sending them because Judaism is going to remain alive in Russia no matter what. Um, and this, this battle raged until 1927. Nine, by 1927, the previous rabbi had someone in every town, village, city in Russia. The previous rabbi had already sent dozens, dozens of his students straight into the fire. In other words, they would go, they were arrested, they were sent off to Siberia, their families were destroyed, um, and, and the this, this standard of self-sacrifice, the people said elevated it to, to unknown heights, to unknown levels. Um, it was Purim, Purim of 1927. In fact, a, year, a month before that, it was a double it was a double Adar. So it was the small Purim, Purim Katan, the previous sabbat was in Moscow, and he was delayed a night, and it was the night of Purim Katan, and he made an announcement that he was going to speak in the synagogue. There were hundreds, perhaps even a thousand people piled in that synagogue, and the previous sabbat got up there and he said a Hasidic discourse, and essentially the message was, we must educate our children. This was in the most public area of, of, of Jewish Russia. Um, there were many uh, GPU agents in the crowd. Uh, you know that's the that's the old KGB. Um, And uh, it became very clear after that speech that there was a target on his back. The communists really wanted to get rid of him. A month later, at the Purim celebration in his home, he spoke with such force and such uh, passion about preserving Judaism in Russia, that really, I mean, the Chassidim there were actually frightened for his life. And eventually, uh, right after Shavuot, about a week after Shavuot, so that year, uh, they stormed into his apartment late at night and they arrested him. They arrested him. They brought him to the infamous Spalerka prison. Uh, he was there for 18 days. Uh, after about two weeks that he was there, he was brought into a room. and He was told that he was going to be allowed to go into exile. And he saw on the paper uh, that was there, you know, what, what is his verdict? On the bottom it said, death by firing squad. And that was crossed out. The next line said, 10 years of harsh labor in, in, in some very, very, you know, remote province. And right next to it was written, yet. Russia, which is no. And under that, it said three years of exile to Kastramat. It wasn't harsh labor. It was a, it was far away. Uh, it would effectively make him not as uh, effective and not as operational as he was when he lived in Leningrad, when he lived you know, in, in the center of, of Russia. But uh, it was better than death and better than harsh labor. He was in the train station to get onto the train to go to Kastramat. And there were hundreds of chassidim there to see him off. They didn't know if they would see him again. For sure, for the next three years, they wouldn't see him. And in front of the, that massive crowd, and obviously it was a public place, and there was a lot of uh, agents there, etc., he gets up. And what does he say? Continue educating your kids. That very reason why he was thrown into prison, he, uh, he kept on doing it, unabashedly. And not only that, before he went to Qasrama, he dispatched the chassid there to open up a school in Qasrama. There was like a small Jewish community there. Um, to make a long story short, he comes to Kastama. Eight days later, when he came to the to the office to register, that you know, to show that, that he's there, they notified him that he's he's free to go. That was the 12th of Tammuz, and he was accompanied by a chassid. His name was Rabbi Altos. And Rabbi Altos, uh, when he heard when he heard the news, he went white and red and like to the point that the previous I had to calm him down. He had to like slap him on the back. It was, it was just such a shock. I mean, everyone was expecting three years, uh, international pressure, things like that. Hopefully after a year, he'll come back six months, a week, eight days. And he was told that he can go free. There was one problem. Since it was a national holiday that day, so they wouldn't be able to give him those official papers that would allow him to travel. They told him to come back the next day. So, this was Tuesday, the 12th of Tammuz. By the time he came back to the place where he was staying, the news had spread like wildfire. And many, many Jews came and packed into the house. What does a Hasidic master do when there's a crowd? Teaches Hasidus. So, on the very first day that he was notified of his release, he said a mimer. The mimer, interestingly enough, does not necessarily deal with the concept of Thanksgiving. It's, it starts off, uh, may God be together with those that help me. That, that That's the beginning of the mime. Very fascinating Hasidic discourse. The next day, after he received his papers, after he received the permissions to leave, he came back to the house. It was also filled with Jews. And he again, he, he said a Hasidic discourse. This time, the Hasidic discourse started off with the traditional blessing that one says at the Torah, when they have to give thanksgiving, now what is what does this mean? The Torah tells us that there is a special um, there's a special sacrifice one needs to give in four circumstances if a person was extremely ill and became healed, if someone was if someone took a, a journey across the desert and survived that journey, um, they should say it again, if someone took a, an ocean voyage, if someone went ca- across the sea. Um, and they survived that, they should also say a blessing. And finally, someone who was in prison and was released also said such a blessing. It would, bring, it would also would bring this sacrifice. We don't have sacrifices today. So in place of the sacrifice, there's a blessing, <speaking in Hebrew> um, the blessing of Thanksgiving. And so on that second day of his release, on the 13th day of Tammuz, they recited a Hasidic discourse based on the, the, the opening words were the words of the blessing of Hagoima Malachayavim Tevez Shigmolani t'av. You'll see on page one on the top. Uh, we begin a person saved from a life threatening situation expresses his thanksgiving in the following words Blessed are you who bestows good things upon the culpable and who has bestowed goodness upon me. So this was a marmot that the Rebbe said on the second day of his release. And that's the marmot we're going to learn today. Uh, just to you know, finish off the story. The next day, on Thursday, he, he boarded a train and he reached his home before Shabbos. On that Shabbos, when he had an aliyah to the Torah, he did say the blessing of Agaimel. They said that Thanksgiving blessing, and uh, there was a kiddush afterwards. And he said another uh, Hasidic discourse. And then afterwards, there was the Shabbos meal. He said another Hasidic discourse. So all of these discourses were were published. In fact, together with a Hasidic discourse that he authored while he was in prison. So while he was languishing in Spallerica prison, and he had some cigarette papers with him, you know, in the good old days, you didn't buy ready made cigarettes. You'd have to have paper and you would have tobacco and you would have to roll it up yourself. Um, this is 1927. I think everyone smoked that, right? Eh? Okay. You were there? Yeah, of course. So I smoked in 1927. Um, so the, the previous rebel was allowed to have his, uh, you know, his, his smoking gear, I guess you can call it that. And uh, instead of using the paper for the cigarettes, he used several pieces of paper to transcribe a Hasidic discourse. And so we have that Hasidic discourse as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a package of five Hasidic discourses, very fascinating ones, and we're going to be reading, we're going to be learning uh, one of them. Did I say five? Yeah, five. Okay. Um, A person saved from a life-threatening situation expresses his thanksgiving in the following words, Blessed are you who bestows good things upon the culpable, who has bestowed goodness upon me. Now, why does the wording of this blessing differ from that of the blessing recited when a miracle occurs? Blessed are you who performed a miracle for me. To match this, our blessing should surely have been worded, Blessed are you who performed something good for me. Now, being healed from an illness is not a miracle necessarily. This is the way of the world. People get sick, some people die, people get sick, and many people recover. So that, that's not necessarily a miracle. You know, every ocean voyage, the fact you survive it is a miracle? No, why, why should you be shipwrecked? Why should you sink? Um, and like this, all of the other four, it's not necessarily miraculous what occurred. However, it is certainly a goodness Right? God is good to me, the fact that I came back from the voyage, the fact that I came out of prison. So the question here is, why was the, the, the expression of the blessing not done in a similar fashion as the blessing we make when a miracle happens to us? When a miracle happens, when it, let's say a miracle happens to a person in a certain place, whenever they see that place, they have to say, Baruch Blessed are you who has done a miracle for me, so seemingly in this scenario, we should have said, blessed are you who has done something good for me. <clears throat> All right, so that's the question. Uh, for those joining us now, the, the handout is in the chat box. If you want to find it there, it's right there in the chat. We can resolve this question by first clarifying a related concept. So we're talking here about Someone who's in trouble, right? If you're ill or if you're in jail or if you're far away, you're in the middle of the desert, you're in the ocean, you're in trouble. Let's talk about someone who's in trouble all the time. As is well known, the descent of the soul into the body, however awesome, is a descent for the purpose of ascent. So the soul which animates our body, the divine soul, it's a part of God. Where does it come from? Comes from heaven. What I mean, it comes from heaven, not that it comes from up there. It comes from a spiritual reality, it comes from a divine reality. And here now, the, the, the soul is enclosed in a physical body. The experience of the soul is all about the physical reality eating, sleeping, taking care of the body, etc. That's an awesome descent. However, why would God do such a thing? Obviously, there is a purpose in doing that. There is a purpose in this descent, and that is and that is so that this descent should bring, a person should bring the soul to a greater heights. The divine soul descends to this lowly plane to be garbed within a body and an animal soul. This descent descent is particularly formidable in the time of exile when numerous obstacles and hindrances hamper the study of the Torah and the observance of the mitzvahs, as well as the bothersome worries and stresses of earning a livelihood. Objectively speaking, the fact that the soul is in the body isn't necessarily a bad thing and is not necessarily um, contrary to its divine awareness. Why is that? Because when the soul is in heaven, it's extremely limited. The soul cannot do mitzvahs. The soul can't give charity. The soul also can't learn Torah the way the Torah is learned here on earth. So, in fact, the, 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 the soul coming into this world, to a major plus. However, it comes with the back with baggage, right? The baggage is that there are other things that need to be done while you're alive. Now, if it was during the times of the holy temple, where the soul is always able to you know pop into the holy temple and get some spiritual inspiration, great. Uh, During the times of the Holy Temple, in other words, the the best time period for the Jewish people, the Jewish people had everything they needed. They didn't have the distractions and the worries of of making a living. So the soul is able to focus its energy exclusively on divine pursuits. And it also has the revelations of the temple. It's also able to come face to face with God all the time. But then comes exile. What happens in exile? There's no temple. Not only that, life is tough, right? Uh, making a living is not easy. So this becomes a major I say, major prison for the, for the soul. Suppose, however, that a Jew overcomes his nature. With powerful determination, he sets aside time to engage in the study of the Torah and in the service of the heart, which is prayer and to observe the mitzvahs with pure faith and with an unquestioning acceptance of the yoke of heaven. Undaunted by any obstacle or hindrance, he stands firm in his conviction to study and to teach. In such a case, even though despite all of these obstacles he overcomes them, it is specifically this kind of divine service that elevates the soul to a higher level than its position before it descended into the body. So this is the best case scenario. And even though this is awesome descent, it should achieve a great elevation. How is that? That despite the obstacles of life and of exile, the Jew makes that commitment to study Torah, to pray, to teach others, and to do the mitzvahs as well. Um, where does this person's determination come from? How does the soul have the ability and the power to do so? The source of this determination is alluded to in the Hasidic interpretation of our sages' statement, which is quoted in the beginning of Tanya. In heaven before a Jew is born, an oath is administered to him. Be righteous and do not be wicked. The term tzaddik implies innocence and the term rasha implies guilt. Okay, so we are, we, are, we are administering an oath. Every one of us made an oath in heaven that they're going to be a tzaddik. The word mashbim, which means giving an oath, as is well known, administering this oath to the soul can also be understood as investing it with power, sating it. Majbiim comes from the word lahazbiya, which means a person is satiated. We are sating the soul with power. The root, soiva of the word majbiim, an oath is administered as virtually identical with the root soiva, the verb of masbiim, one causes him to be sated. When the soul is about to descend to this physical plane to be clothed within the body, it is invested with the requisite power to overcome the material orientation of the body and conquer the animal soul and to contend with all the veils and obscurities that screen the light of the soul. So, even though we're going on this roller coaster ride, we're going from this divine reality into this physical reality, and there are so many obstacles in our way we are given the power necessary to overcome all of these obstacles. By way of explanation, our sages teach that every day a person's evil inclination rises powerfully against him and desires to slay him. As it is written, the wicked watches out for the righteous and seeks to slay him. The wicked is referring to the Sahara Were it not for the Holy One, blessed be he who helps him, a man would not be able to contend with it. As it is written, God does not abandon him to his hand. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this Sahara that's trying to slay us. If you would have to come up with an adjective to describe the Sahara, what would you say? What would be your most damning adjective? <clears throat> I'll take ideas from the, from the screens as well. Very tempting person. Alright, so we have we have tempting, selfishness, and, and enticing. So you know, forget about adjectives. Give it a give it a name, a title. You know how you call something a monster? Give, give it like a name that can actually that's that's so that's so insulting and is so indicative of, of what the CHR is all about. Anyway, Tom destroyer, huh? This monster, this evil who knows what, right? You can also say Rob, you can also use the word free, free will. Free will. And it can free will away. is not a bad thing. Free will is a good thing. Yeah, it could it could it could go both ways. True. So the HRR is taking advantage of your of your free will. Right. So huh? But it's something that we we must have. Without it. We don't have life as we know it. Well, yes, in other words, it's something that we've been given. All of us have it. Life would be pretty good without it, by the way. If you if you wouldn't have it. That was the original plan, Rob uh, Carval. What was that? That was the original intention that we shouldn't have it or we should have it. We shouldn't have it. That we shouldn't have the free will. We have we have so clarity before the, the scene of Adana and Havana. We were so we were so we have so clear the, the, the truth that we didn't need to, to have that, that uh, possibility of understanding what was wrong and what was right. So so the truth of the matter is free choice is a good thing. It really is a good thing. Um, and and being able to know the difference between good and evil is is a, is a tremendous thing. It's actually a great thing. The so problem is problem is when we have a part of us that finds ways of take of of abusing it, of taking advantage of it. See, free will does not, by definition, need to be abused. It doesn't need to be manipulated and, and taken in the wrong direction. However, God did give us a big challenge. That's called the Yetzirah. And our sages, the, 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 the title they give to the Yetzirah is a leech. The leech. Now let's talk a little bit about this leech. Why is the being a leech one of the most damning you know, uh, terms that could be possible? So uh leech takes from someone else. A leech lives off of someone else like a parasite. And gives so a leech harms not only himself but someone else. Right. So a leech is constantly taking, and also by the way, is never giving. There's never putting giving back. It's constantly taking. Uh let's go on page two, the top, the top paragraph here. There is a verse alluding to the clipa. Uh, Klipa is the, 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 the unholiness that's in the world that says, the leech has two daughters who cry, give, give. In this spirit, the evil inclination naturally has a greedy disposition, which desires and craves whatever physical and material benefits it sees. Its spirit is haughty, causing a person to be precious in his own eyes, to exalt himself over others, and to pursue honor and glorification. He does not begrudge others what they own. Not only does he consider his own positions as being intended for himself alone, but in addition, he is envious and craves the possessions of others. All day and all night, he pursues the desires and fancies of his heart like an animal. His intellectual activity is directed only toward fulfilling his desires and contriving to satisfy the cravings of his heart. To explain our sages declare the evil inclination is like a fly sitting between the two openings of the heart. Its only concern is its own desires and yearnings, like a mosquito, which takes nurture into its body but does not give forth. So too the animal soul thinks only of itself. There is a virtue to, to um, waste. <laughs> every, every, human, every human being and every animal every, makes waste. And that waste, waste is healthy for the environment, by the way. Right? For example, uh, if you want to, if you want to, if you want your field to be good and healthy, etc., you're going to let out a herd of cows or sheep or whatever it is, and uh, when they do their needs in the field, that's that's very good for the field. So every the, the problem with the mosquito is it's constantly taking in, and doesn't make any waste. In other words, it doesn't give anything back to the environment. That's the whole idea of the Eitz The Eitz represents that ultimate selfishness, right? Exactly what, what, uh, what, Ed, what Ed said earlier, that selfishness, constantly thinking about itself all the time. As it is said, the eye sees and the heart craves. Likewise, the Jerusalem Talmud states, the eyes and the heart are two brokers for sin. The process begins with sight. As our sages comment, the evil inclination does not rule over anything unless it can see it. After a person sees something, his heart begins to hanker after it, and he follows its whims. Hanker, huh? So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. One of the, one of the, the most important parts of our body are our eyes. We have got to make sure we're not looking at the wrong stuff. Um, that, that is the, the, the first connection one has with evil is through the eyes. It's the broker of sin. why? Because when the are is using the eyes to see things, what does it see all the time? I want, I like. It's all about me, me, me. The basic reason for this is a person's exceeding self-love, his high regard for himself. This is why he indulges himself allowing his heart free reign without any restraint or limit. Not only does he not fear God at all, but he acts like a wild animal, attacking and stealing in many different ways to fulfill his heart's desires. As we see for ourselves, you know, in general, the, the previous rebbe you know—he goes into the the minutest details to describe human nature, um, and then this is not the only uh, the only discourse in this fashion. And in general, when learning his discourses, one can always, like you know, find themselves thinking about themselves. How did you know exactly what I was thinking? How does he know me so well? The answer is, you're not the only one. There are many people like that. In fact, fact, most people, uh, in one way or another, can find some type of uh, common ground with what's being described here. Um, As we see for ourselves, there are people who follow the desires of their hearts, heaven forbid. All their thoughts, words, and deeds are oriented to what they crave. This attitude results from the seductive craft of the evil inclination, which incites a person and leads him from one downfall to the next, heaven forbid, utilizing this exceeding self-love, this high regard for yourself, and this unbridled selfishness, constantly thinking about yourself. So, what do you do? What do you do with this answer In other words, this is actually this is the face of exile. Exile is not necessarily the problem of outside forces you know, stopping me from learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, intimidating me, shutting down the shul, shutting down the school. That, that's, that's not the, the main problem of exile. The main problem of exile is within me. I have the Yetzirah. I have this evil inclination that has this, this decrepit, you know, this, this loathsome type of approach to life that everything is about itself. And everything is for me, me, me. So what do you do? The appropriate response is indicated by our sages. I, God, created the evil inclination. And I created the Torah as a condiment to temper it. I'm giving you the ketchup, the mustard, the salt. You have an evil inclination. And it's a very powerful force. And there's a reason why you have it. And by the way, that selfishness can actually be a good thing if used in the right way. How are you going to temper that evil inclination? And how are you going to train it and harness it in a way that it is helpful, that it actually leads to good things, specifically through Torah? If you are occupied in the study of the Torah, you will not be delivered into His hand. If you are confronted by that despicable one, If the evil inclination aggravates you, drag him to the house of study. If he is like a stone, he will crumble. If he is like iron, he will be crushed. This is a quote from the sages in Talmud. So the the Rebbe explains, The evil inclination has several different forms of expression. There are people whose hearts are like stone, heaven forbid, and others whose hearts are like iron. In either case, the evil inclination makes these people resemble inanimate objects, devoid of life. The void of expression. Just as an object cannot be responsive to a concept, for the two are qualitatively worlds apart, so too such a person is not at a level at which he can be affected by a divine concept. Like a stone, he feels no vitality in the study of the Torah and the observance of its mitzvahs. A, it's, a uh, it's a very interesting comparison. Imagine you go to the wall, and you try to explain one plus one equals two to the wall. Will you have any response? Will there be any type of appreciation on the part of the wall? Will the wall have learned something? The answer is no, you're talking, it's not a piece of wood, right? You talk to a stone, you talk. I mean, they're not capable of, of, of dealing with these things. They're not capable of even under appreciating that something is happening to them. Sometimes the evil inclination knows how to, how to completely overtake our psyche to the point that when we're confronted by beautiful ideas when we're confronted by by spiritual concepts that are unfolding in front of our eyes we don't even react we don't even notice it's like we're a stone you know what a klutz is what's a klutz a block of wood right a klutz means a block of wood so typically you know in america who who do we call a klutz someone that spills their drink someone a fumbler, right? A fumbler. But uh, that, that's not really, the, that's not the right way to use klutz. Klutz is actually for someone who is sitting in class and just, it's not going in. Someone who's hearing something and is just totally unaffected. That's a klutz. Why? Because if you go to a block of wood and you would try to explain uh, a story, you would try to explain a beautiful concept to the block of wood, you would go nowhere. That's what the Yitzhahara does. The Yitzhahara basically transforms us into klutzes. It transforms us into, into people that are just incapable of appreciating the beauty of God's world. We're incapable of appreciating miracles that are going on around us all the time. And we're incapable of appreciating a concept of Torah that is being taught in a way that should be so inspiring, and so empowering, and we're just not getting it. So what do you do? This situation can be rectified through the study of Torah and attendance at the house of study. What's that? Aren't we talking about a klutz? No, we're not talking about a guy that's not capable of reading words of Torah or or hearing an idea. He can hear an idea, but it's not not, um, penetrating. Ah, it's not penetrating. Learn more. Make sure to spend more time learning. Hang around in an environment of Torah study. Go to the study hall. This means not only studying oneself or listening to communal study sessions if one is incapable of studying alone, but working to disseminate Torah study among others. Get involved in Torah activism. Get involved in dragging people to a class. Get involved in promoting classes. Get involved in, in, telling, in, in, in uh, sharing the beauty of Torah with others. The study of Torah itself has the power to destroy all evil, to destroy the Yitzharan and all the evil around us. We find this implied in the verse: "Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you establish strength." And our sages comment: "Strength really refers to Torah." Even when children, who don't understand what they're saying, but when they repeat words of Torah, they're sucklings, they're babes, they're little babies, little children. But as they begin to speak, they start to say the words, they start to say, Those words of Torah uttered by children who don't understand what they're saying, have the power to destroy all evil, and especially the evil of the Eitzahara. So if that's true with regard to children, for sure that's true about an adult who's capable of understanding something. But the point is that his Eitzahara is, uh, is uh, causing problems. And the Eitzahara is trans- turning him into a klutz, so, what's the answer? Study more Torah. Get involved in Torah. Such a person then attends the house of study to join in communal prayer. He participates in fixed study sessions before and after morning prayers, as well as between afternoon and evening services, and whenever communal study is conducted, whatever, wherever he may be. Hanging around the Torah environment is extremely helpful. Through such activities, the evil inclination crumbles. As may plainly be observed, individuals who have engaged in the study of the Torah in different ways have thereby risen to a high spiritual level. When even a simple person who is unable to study alone dedicates himself to supporting Torah scholars, he elevates the standing of his soul and becomes included in the category of the masters of good deeds. In many other sources, the great merit of those involved in such activities is extolled. For example, suffering will stay far from those who occupy themselves into our study, and it is stated that the possessions of such people will prosper. All right, so we had a problem. The problem was that our soul came down to this world, is enclosed in our bodies, and it's constantly challenged by the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is selfish. The Yetzirah is constantly thinking about itself, wants everything for itself. Every waking hour is trying to find ways of how to seduce and entice the person to sin. So what do you do? Not only only is it constantly challenging the person, it has effectively dulled the person's sensitivity to spirituality, to Torah, to anything that is divine. So what do you do now? The response to that must be increasing in Torah study, learning more. If you can't learn yourself, join another class and just being around the Torah environment. And not only that, getting involved in the activism of Torah, getting other people to come to a class, getting other people to learn more Torah, that itself has an impact, and that itself can crush the heart and allow a person's spirit to be truly free. When did all these problems start? When did our exile, the exile of our souls and our bodies begin? And when did the response to this exile become relevant? The answer is 3,333 years ago, from the very beginning. Let's continue on page three, on the third to last paragraph. At the time of the giving of the Torah, all the Jewish people whose souls were there, were, were then enclosed in bodies as well as the souls of all the Jewish people which will be enclosed in bodies until the coming of the Shia. And because he mentioned the Shiach, the Rebbe says, May this be speedily in our days. We all undertook the observance of the Torah and its mitzvahs as one man on behalf of ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. Now, at the time, yeah, we had Yetzirah harah but uh, the environment we lived in then was a pretty cool environment. We were in the desert, surrounded by divine clouds. We were nourished by the mana, by the water, the miraculous water that flowed from the stone. So uh, life was pretty good. And so therefore keeping Torah and Mitzvahs then was, I guess you could say, you could take it for granted. When did the true test of Torah and Mitzvahs, when, when did that really happen? When were we truly tested to see if we really are committed to our identity as Jews and to the observance of Judaism? The first time that that happened was at the time of Purim. That was the first time that the Jewish people were banished from their homeland. They were, they they were far away from any type of spiritual elevation and they were under the threat of annihilation. And despite all of that, they were committed to their identity as Jews. No one considered the idea of, you know, accepting idols, uh, converting from Judaism in order to save their lives. And even though Haman made life miserable, did not allow the Jews to learn Torah and to do mitzvahs, etc., the Jewish people made that commitment. So, in fact, the the, the saga of Purim, the story of Purim, is considered like another giving of the Torah. Just like the Jewish people accepted the Torah at Sinai 3,333 years ago, a thousand years later, the Jewish people reconnected and re-accepted the Torah. Why? Because they were put through that ultimate test, that, that test of conviction and of, 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 uh, of, of, uh, of connection. Towards the end of the saga of the poor miracle, it is written, the Jews affirmed and accepted. The sages connect this with an earlier episode. They now affirmed, integrated within themselves, what they had already accepted when the Torah was given. Even though they accepted the Torah at the time of Sinai, in the time of Purim, that's when it became confirmed. So the Rebbe brings this to our present situation. In the present time of exile, when obstacles and hindrances to the study of the Torah and the observance of its mitzvahs multiply, this is the time to intensify our divine service in their fulfillment. Throughout history, challenges to our people's faith have stirred them to the peaks of divine service. For example, in the era of Mordechai and Esther, Haman sought to raise his hand against the Jews, his sole ambition being to destroy our people and uproot their faith. Similarly, at the time of the Hashmonian uprising commemorated by Hanukkah, the Greeks sought to provoke our people into a denial of God and his Torah, demanding inscribe it on the horn of an ox that you have no share in the God of Israel. It was precisely these times that emboldened our people to summon the strength needed to observe the Torah and its mitzvahs with the nefesh in a spirit of self-sacrifice as is explained elsewhere." You have to realize the, the, the context of what this is being said. The Rebbe had just been basically threatened with the firing squad, and he had been sent off for three years to exile. And was now miraculously allowed home. Usually after you, get, after you run afoul with the authorities, you know you usually do. You Maintain a low profile, go home, and don't make, anyone, no, don't make any problems. Here the Rebbe did the exact opposite. Even before he left Kastur what's he say? He says, fellow Jews, we are living in terrible times. But you do realize that the fact that it's a terrible time doesn't mean that it's a time where Judaism should suffer as a result where you should compromise your observance of Judaism and your identity as a Jew. On the contrary, if you look at history, this is exactly the time when we are able to prove our commitment to Judaism. The Rebbe is essentially taking his entire imprisonment, which basically represented the imprisonment of the entire Chabad movement, and by extension, the entire Jewish nation that was in Russia at the time. He was basically the representation of the Jewish people in Russia. And they wanted to crush him, and by extension, all of the Jews. And Ebba said, we're, far, we're not out of danger. I mean, we're still, we're still here in communist Russia, but know that the, 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 the danger that we face, the obstacles that we are up against, they're not here to crush us. In fact, they are here to allow us to be elevated to the greatest heights. Similarly to the fact that the Jews in the times of Mordechai and Esther They weren't crushed by Haman. On the contrary, Haman allowed them to achieve a greater connection with Torah than was achieved by Moses and the Jews in the desert. The Jews standing at Sinai did not manage to to cultivate such a powerful Jewish identity. They weren't able to cultivate that type of relationship with Torah. Specifically in Persia, under Achashverosh and under the threat of Haman's decree of annihilation, that's when the Jews were able to do it. And the Rebbe's message to the Jews of Russia is, this is the time when you're able to do it. Don't allow my imprisonment to, to, um, to discourage you from learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. On the contrary, my imprisonment should be the indication to you that this is D-Day. This is what all of Judaism was here for, to reach this situation and that we should be able to prove ourselves, that we should become Judaism's greatest generation. It is written, let's continue on the, the second paragraph on page 4. It is written, I, God, have not changed, nor have you, Jacob's descendants, expired. Beyond its simple meaning, the verse may also be understood at the non-literal level of drush. All right, so first of all, it says, I have not changed, and the Jewish people have not been expired. In other words, we're all still here. Just like we were here 3,000 years ago, we're here today. There's another way of understanding this this statement. The prophet exclaims in wonderment, you, the Jewish people, see that God has not retracted his commitment to you. Uh, As it is said, for God will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Everyone can see divine providence palpably, for our people are one lamb among 70 wolves, and yet it survives. If so, if you're able to see so clearly how God is taking care of us, even though it makes no sense that we are still around. If so, the prophet asked the Jewish people, why are you not drawn after the Torah and its mitzvahs with a love so intense that your soul expires? The message here is very simple. When the Jewish people are oppressed, and when it seems that our situation has never been worse, and yet we're still here to endure the pain, to experience it, And afterwards, to celebrate the positive outcome, this itself should be the greatest inspiration for more Torah study, for more intense Torah study. And the Rebbe is essentially saying, look what just happened to me. I just went through hell on earth, 18 days in Shpalarka. No one wants to go through that. I could have been in front of the firing squad. And then I was sent off to three years in exile, away from my family, away from my community. And yet I'm going to have the last life. This should not be a discouragement to you. On the contrary, this should be the greatest inspiration. This should be as miraculous and as inspiring as the splitting of the sea. The Jews were so excited then. They made a commitment to Judaism at that point. This miracle, the miracle of my release, the miracle of the, the fact that only after eight days of being in Kastrama, they're allowing me to go. Let's cash this in. Let's milk it for what it truly is an unbelievable miracle that we are meant to derive inspiration from. For witnessing overt divine providence should surely motivate a person to dedicate himself to the Torah and its mitzvahs. If for whatever reason his involvement does not reflect his true ability and potential, he is aroused from above and is saved. So now we're going to go back to the original question, the wording of this blessing, right? It really should have said, blessed are you, Lord our God, who has done good for me, who did good for me, made a good thing happen to me. Instead it says, has bestowed goodness upon me. Shegmolani toiv, he gave me good, he bestowed goodness upon me. It's like this. Good refers to tyro. It's, it's a whole discussion of the Talmud, but essentially toiv is a synonym for Torah. So when we're saying thank you God for giving me Torah, this is what we're saying. Thank you God for bringing me into this world filled with challenges, obstacles, but together with that you bestowed upon me the Torah. You gave me the Torah that gives me the strength to overcome all these obstacles, that gives me the strength to, to see what's going on around me, not in a negative way, but on the contrary, in an inspiring way. And through that, I have the confidence and the, and the ability to go through it in a healthy way, in a positive way, in a way that makes me a stronger and healthier Jew. Hence, in reciting this blessing, the individual expresses thanks for the opportunity to apply himself with increased vigor to serving God through Torah study and prayer. This is the discourse that the Rebbe said while he was still in Kasturama. Any, at any moment, they can revoke. His, uh, his his release, and yet he takes the opportunity to communicate to the Jews that were there, and through writing it down and publishing it to every Jew that would ever read this, uh, this uh, script, would ever read this text, and essentially the message being communicated is that no matter what is happening around us, no matter how terrible and how evil it may be, we have a special filter, and that filter is called tarot. The more tarot we learn, the more Torah we are surrounded with, that Torah allows us to filter everything in a way that allows us to grow, that allows us to become better, that allows us to become stronger. So as we celebrate the 94th anniversary of the 12th of Tammuz, you should all say the Chaim on any type of beverage you may have with you. Say the Chaim. That just like that exile was terminated, that uh, terrible decree was terminated. May God Almighty help us that this exile should finally be terminated, even though life is good, right? Life is life is good, but it's not good enough. We're still in exile. We're still not we, we still don't have Mashiach. May God help us that Mashiach should come immediately on this day of Yudbay's Tammuz, which is a chagagula. It's a it's a it's a celebration of redemption. May it bring the ultimate redemption together with the Shiach. All right? Any, any questions? You know, not, Rabbi, not everybody is like the Rebbe to have this courage that he had. But that's why he shares it with us. Yeah. That's the whole idea. Yeah. Rebbe is not there just to be like, uh, you know, in a wax museum. She come and look at him and admire him. No, no, no. That's why he shares these ideas with us. Because if you think about it, the Rebbe wasn't the only one at Sinai. You were at Sinai, and I was at Sinai. We all got the tear. Well, thank you very much. It's encouraging. Yes, absolutely. Tell me what means, Nefesh. Nefesh. That's a, That's a good word. That's like uh, the buzzword for the 12th of Thomas. serious literally, yeah. No. <laughs> no. Please. Maybe that's the, in, in Hebrew. No, 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 you, 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 you spelled it That's right ah. uh let's get a different one second. Whereas do you have a Hebrew? Yeah, there's the sea in the Is So the tough. Ah, one second. Hold on. Oh, did you mean Mr. Nefesh? Now go. Self-sacrifice. 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 All right.